In a moment, we'll open up together to Matthew chapter 4. You may notice that Matthew chapter 4 is in fact not the book of Romans. For the last number of months, we've been going through the book of Romans together, but this week and next week, we'll be taking a short hiatus. Today, we'll be looking at the calling of the disciples, as Matthew, calls, as Matthew records it. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25 will be our anchor text for today. I've been married for about seven months now, and I think that that makes me a pro at being married. And I'm very quickly learning that being married makes you do things that you wouldn't have ordinarily have seen yourself doing in the past. In some of my friends, I've seen them start to pick up new habits. I had a friend who at one point professed that the most efficient way and the best way that you could consume caffeine was bang energy drinks. And now the baristas at his local coffee shop know his exact latte order. For me, I've been wanting to impress my wife with some cooking. And I've taken to watching online cooking videos from everybody's favorite friendly chef, Gordon Ramsay. Fortunately for me, he put a series of videos out online for, to help the average person learn how to cook like a master chef. And if you're anything like me, and you've tried to cook along with an online cooking video with a very well-trained chef, you very quickly come to terms with the unbelievable gap in skill between you and the chef. I think by the time I finished chopping my onion in half, he'd finished chopping through three different onions, all of his cloves of garlic, and his parsley. And along the way, somehow my steaks and Gordon Ramsay's steaks just never quite turn out the same way. Maybe for you it isn't cooking, but after watching somebody who's really, really good at what you want to do, the prototype, the example of what you want to be like, it can almost be more discouraging than it is encouraging. You come to terms with, What's the difference between you and this person? It's like you get frustrated with yourself. You think, I just watched them do it. They just told me every step on how to do the thing they just did. What gives? Why can't I do it? And I think that the same thing can happen in our spiritual lives. I think we often see what the ideal is and we know what we're aiming for. And yet somehow when we read about these spiritual examples, we get frustrated with ourselves whenever we fall short. If there was ever a list of passages in the Bible that were like the spiritual equivalent of watching a Gordon Ramsay video, I think that the calling of the disciples is probably near the top. When we see the disciples, we see the example that we want to look like and be like. And it's easy to be dismissive of a passage like this and think, well, there's no way I could ever do that and I can be like that. I wonder why that is. I wonder why it is that when we're confronted with the realities of what our lives can and ought to look like, we can find ourselves discouraged by them or dismissive of them. I wonder if maybe we don't want to be disappointing. We don't want to disappoint ourselves and realize the lack of progress that we feel like we should have made at this point in our spiritual lives. Or we don't want to be disappointing to those around us as our mistakes become as obvious as the difference between my steak and Gordon Ramsay's steak. Or maybe we don't want to feel like we are disappointing God, and we don't want to say, God, I know, I know, I know, I'm not measuring up to what I should be, I know what I need to be like, can we just move on from this? I believe that if we read this passage and approach it with a humble heart, that we'll be confronted with the height and depth of God's love and God's grace to us, that will empower us to follow the example that we're about to read about. It's my hope and my prayer that by the end of our time studying the scriptures together, we'll come to know that because Jesus is the Messiah, we can wholeheartedly follow him. To do this, we're broadly going to look at two different parts of this. We're going to look at knowing Christ's place and knowing our place. So first we're going to look at Christ's place and who he is, and then we're going to look at our place and who we are in light of that. I don't want to pretend to be impressive in studying or understanding the scriptures so I think it would be prudent of us to pray together that God would help us to understand the word that he's given us. So let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you that you've come to us, that you've revealed yourself to us, first in the scriptures and fully in Christ. As we're studying today, Holy Spirit, you're the author of scripture. We ask that you would help us to understand what you've written and preserved for us. God, would you soften our hearts would you help us to leave the distractions of hectic work weeks or challenging relationships behind and focus wholly on what you have for us today? God, we need you, and we believe that you desire to meet with us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you aren't there already, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat backs in front of you, or the verses will be up behind me on the screen. Before we read, let's take a minute to catch up with where we are in the narrative of Jesus' life in the gospel story. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 picks up right after Jesus' fast in the wilderness. Jesus has just done an intense 40-day-long fast where he didn't eat or drink anything. He meditated on Scripture, and at the end of this big fast that he's doing, he's actually tempted by Satan himself. The devil shows up to him and tempts him to sin in a variety of ways. And Jesus defeats and conquers all of those temptations. Now, filled with the Holy Spirit, after defeating Satan, he begins his public ministry. And it's at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry that we're going to pick up and read. This is God's word, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was, fulfilled, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What does it mean to follow Jesus? No, really, what does it mean? Following Jesus feels like a phrase that kind of gets thrown around in church in our church Christianese language so that we can all kind of broadly talk about the same kind of thing and agree on it. But when we really get into the teeth of it and ask, no, what, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? I think sometimes the answer can be a little bit unclear. In this particular passage, following Jesus has a very particular meaning. Look at verses 20 and 22. Because both of those verses describe the disciples' reaction to Jesus calling them. It says that they followed him. The word for followed in verses 20 and 22 is the Greek word akalutheo. And that word, along with being a mouthful, means to accompany somebody. At that time, if you were akalutheoing somebody, it would be your goal to become like the person that you followed. First century disciples in Israel, would have thought of this word and reserved it for following after a rabbi and the people who followed them. The people who followed a rabbi would follow along closely behind him, watching everything he did, every moment of his day, every word that he said, every prayer that he would recite. The disciples would follow them and accompany them and want to imitate them and be like them. Nowadays, you can even still see this some when you go to Israel. You might see an old rabbi He's kind of hunched over as he's limping by, walking by the western wall. And a little ways off, you could see a group of young men who are also hunched over and limping along because maybe they want to imitate him and learn how to walk when they get old. So when we talk about following Jesus, at least for this particular passage, we're having this idea of following him to imitate him becoming like Jesus, like the disciples would have been aiming to. That's how they would have understood the call and the context of follow me. They would want to akalutheo, follow to imitate him. To be clear, becoming like Jesus 
by following him doesn't mean that we're trying to copy the way that Jesus walks or the exact kinds of words that he would use. Imagine many of us probably don't speak ancient Hebrew or Aramaic. Instead, it means that our lives and our characters become increasingly Christ-like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about how as believers, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Jesus. You can think about it like going to the eye doctor. You know how when they're trying to help you figure out your prescription, and they put the big machine in front of your eyes, and they flip and say, one or two, one or two. And as you make each decision, the lenses are supposed to bring the letters in front of you into further and further clarity until eventually you hopefully can see well. That's kind of what it's like to become Christ-like. It's that our lives become clearer and clearer lenses through which people can see Jesus. So as we think about following Jesus, it'll be helpful to keep this idea in our head that following him is like imitating him so that people can see him and understand him better. I think more than the word for following Jesus, though, the word that's most striking in the passage is the word immediately. You can find that word in verses 20 and 22, and it describes the disciples' reaction, their first reaction to hearing Jesus' call. Both times it says, immediately they left and followed. We live in a world of constant change. We live in a world where it feels like everything is in flux. We had a sense of normal, and then two years ago, a global pandemic upended our sense of normal, and it feels like we've been grabbing at and trying to find any sense of normalcy that we can hold on to. It's like we're living in a snow globe that got shaken up, and it just keeps getting shaken, 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 and none of the little pieces can settle back down. And that's part of what makes the disciples' immediate response to following Jesus so striking. In the middle of an ordinary day at work, the most normal thing that they could be doing with their day, Jesus comes along and calls them. And they make a decision that fundamentally alters every single thing about their lives. It's like they leaped without looking. They didn't give a second thought to it. How could they do that? Part of the reason is because they knew Jesus. So then if we want to wholeheartedly follow Jesus, like the example that the disciples give us, then we too have to know Christ's place. When Jesus calls the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, it isn't his first interaction with them. John chapter 1 tells us that Peter and Andrew had actually been spending time with John the Baptist. And one day while Andrew was spending time with John the Baptist, Jesus walks by, and John, as he always does whenever he sees Jesus, points and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. And Andrew goes on a little field trip. He leaves John the Baptist to go and follow Jesus. He goes and he stays with him for a day. And at the end of the day, it says about the 10th hour, he went and ran off and found his brother Peter. And when he finds Peter, this is what he tells him. In John 1.41, he says, We have found the Messiah. Peter and Andrew understood that Jesus wasn't just another itinerant preacher in the ancient Near East. They understood that he wasn't just another teacher who was saying some good things about how we can think about following God. They understood that Jesus was the hope of the whole world. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. For an invitation to follow somebody to be impactful or understood correctly, you have to understand who's doing the inviting. Like right now, if I told all of you guys, I am so excited, I was just invited to go and cook with Guy Savoy. No amount of expectant looking or no, no amount of excitement in my voice would get you to be able to understand that unless I told you that Guy Savoy is the person who trained Gordon Ramsay how to cook. Or if I told you, oh my goodness, I just got an invitation to a basketball camp that's run by Keith Dambrot. That really wouldn't matter much unless you knew that Keith Dambrot was the person who taught LeBron James how to play basketball when he was in high school. For an invitation to be impactful, we have to know who's doing the inviting. And it's the exact same way with Jesus. If we don't have the fullest picture of who he is, if we don't have the biggest idea of what Jesus is like and who he is, then an invitation to follow him really wouldn't be all that compelling. The disciples had a clear picture of Jesus. They understood that he was the savior of the world. 
They understood that he's the one who would deliver God's people from their sins. That's why they called him the Messiah. They didn't know at the time exactly how he'd do it. They didn't know that he would live a perfect and sinless life and die a substitutionary death on our behalf so that he could take the punishment for our sins and then resurrect in power and defeat sin and death. No, they didn't know that, but they understood that when Jesus called them, that it was the Messiah who was calling them. This wasn't a call that they could just ignore like some other teacher trying to call them to come with them. Part of what made them ready to follow Jesus was a habit of repentance that they had built up in their time following John the Baptist. Matthew 3 records John the Baptist's central message as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Peter and Andrew would have been familiar with this message of repentance. They would have spent time with John the Baptist, and they would have heard him say over and over and over again, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist would talk about the Messiah coming. He would say, there's one coming after me who's greater than me. He's the one who's going to take away the world's sins. And he also told them that the way to prepare for that one who's coming after them is by having a habit of repentance. He would say over and over and over again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would baptize people for the repentance of their sins. So they understood that, the disciples understood that they had a great need for forgiveness for their sins. They understood that they needed to daily have a habit of repenting. And then finally, the Messiah comes along. Jesus comes along, the one who John says will take away the world's sins. And he makes an invitation, follow me. Of course they would follow. Of course they would immediately leave their nets. Why wouldn't they? If they had a right view of themselves as people in deep need of forgiveness, and they had a right view of Jesus as the one who takes away the world's sins, how could they not follow him? I wonder if sometimes we miss out on following Jesus because we don't have a habit of repentance. I wonder if sometimes there are certain behaviors or patterns in our life that we've just kind of made peace with because that's just how we are or because that's what's okay with our culture and our group of people. We say things like, ah, I know, I'm just an impatient person. Or I really know I shouldn't be saying this, but... And we seem to forget that as Christians, the call today for us to be followers of Christ is the same as it was then, to repent and to continue to repent, to be in a habit of always repenting and continuing to turn away from our sins. And we can confidently repent all the time. I think sometimes we're afraid to try and repent of our sins because if we mess up after we do it, then we really didn't mean it that time. It's almost like we think if we sin after we repent, it's like, ah, I don't, I don't know, am I, am I really repenting? Am I, am I really trying to follow Jesus? And there's this anxiety that we have that we're supposed to finally just stop sinning after we repent. But we see there's a habit of repentance that people have. Look at Jesus' call in verse 19. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is saying here that he's the one who's going to change us. It's not about how hard we can repent. It's not about really meaning that repentance that one time. But it's about trusting the promise of God. That as we follow him, he will make us fishers of men. He will be the one to change us. There's grace to repent again and again and again and again. That's what frees us to follow Christ. When we know Christ's place as the Messiah who's come to forgive and take away our sins, then we can wholeheartedly follow him. And interestingly enough, as we follow Jesus and as we come to know Christ's place as the Messiah, it makes our place much more clear. Christ is the Messiah who we follow, so naturally our place is as followers. It's right and it makes sense for us to follow Jesus. We have an obligation to. Paul explains this idea really well in Romans 6 where he says that at one time, before we knew Christ, we were slaves to sin. But God in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, has set us free from sin so that we can wholeheartedly follow him. Jesus is the only righteous example 
And if we're trying to be righteous as he's righteous, it only makes sense for us to try and follow and imitate his example. Jesus is the righteous one. Until I became a teacher, I don't think I ever realized how clearly people can pick up on the example that you're following and leaving behind, especially when there are kids who are closely watching you. I'm the PE teacher at the, at the school that I teach at, and early in the year when I was teaching the warm-up routines to all of the classes, I tried to be really careful with how I picked the words to describe all of the stretches that we would do, and I tried to make sure I repeated the same words so that they could drill it and do it with their eyes closed. Well, recently, I thought that I would let some of the middle schoolers try leading the warm-up routine. And I was really surprised when one of them could get up there and actually use the exact same words that I had been using throughout the whole year. It was a little bit creepy, actually. And then he got to a part where he said, all right, we're going to do some big shoulder rolls forward. And as he starts doing his shoulder rolls, somebody says, no, 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 no. It's big shoulder rolls forward. And that's when I learned that if I ever wanted to know what I sounded like when I teach, I should just ask a middle schooler about what I sound like. So what did Jesus do? What's the example that he left for us to follow? Matthew tells us twice what he's doing as he calls the disciples. The call of the disciples is in verses 18 to 22, and what Jesus is doing sandwiches those verses in verses 17 to 23. Verse 17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again in verse 23, after he calls the disciples, he says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's worthwhile to think about why that might be mentioned twice. Take note of the prophecy that, Isaiah, uh, that Matthew quotes from Isaiah in verses 15 and 16. If you look at verse 16, he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What a miserable situation. Living in the region and shadow of death. It's a pretty bleak and dark situation. So how is it that God is going to do this? How is God going to bring light to this people who are dwelling in the region and shadow of death? How is God going to shine a great light on the people who are dwelling in darkness? Well, in Isaiah 9, just a few verses later, God answers that question. This is the end of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In verse 14 of Matthew, do you see what he's trying to say when he says that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah 9? He's saying Jesus is the king who's coming. Jesus is the son who's given to us. Jesus will take up the throne of David and establish the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's telling us here that Jesus is a king who's walking around and telling people that his kingdom is here. He's walking around and saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm coming to take away the world's sins. I'm here to bring about the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready to hear about it? And he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's making a claim that he's the one who will bring light to people in darkness. And it's really important that we pay attention to the kinds of people that are talked about having light brought to them. In verse 15, Jesus uh, is described as bringing light to people by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not just for God's people in Israel. It's not just for the ethnically Jewish people. The Lord's kingship, Jesus' kingship, the forgiveness of sins, isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for the Gentiles. It's for people beyond the Jordan, people who are outside of the promised land, people who never would have known Jesus. 
That's who he's come for. That's where his kingdom extends to. And that's us. We're the Gentiles. We're people who were outside of the promised land. We're people who lived and walked in darkness. We lived in the region and shadow of death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we find eternal life in our King who brings about the kingdom of heaven. And the way that we follow Jesus in proclaiming the kingdom is found exactly in the call. If you actually put your fingers on verses 17 and 23 in your Bibles, the call to the disciples in verse 19 is almost directly in the middle, directly in the sandwich of Jesus claiming and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He tells us how we can join him in it. He calls them to be fishers of men. And Jesus doesn't just use that language because it's some kind of convenient metaphor because they were fishermen. No, to call back to a prophecy in Jeremiah 16. In Jeremiah 16, God had promised that he would send fishers to bring his people back. Now, the prophecy in Jeremiah specifically refers to bringing God's people out of exile from Babylon and back into the promised land. But now, Jesus is bringing that promise and that role of being a fisher of men into a greater fulfillment, into its greatest fulfillment. See, it isn't just about God's people returning to God's land. It's about God's people returning to God himself through Christ, through the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus proclaims that he's come to forgive sins, to bring light to darkness, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, and then he invites the disciples to join him and do the same, to pull people out of darkness like they were fish in the sea, to pull them out from darkness and into the kingdom of heaven. And after calling the disciples to be heralds of the kingdom, he shows them how to do it. Any good leader would show someone how to do the thing that they're asking them to do. And look at verses 23 to 25. The disciples would spend the next three years of their lives traveling with Jesus, and they would see him perform miracles and be merciful in healing people. They would listen to him teach the crowds and proclaim the kingdom. They would watch him exercise power over evil. They would watch him be merciful as God is merciful. They would watch him be powerful as God is powerful. They would watch Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God, not just with the words that came out of his mouth, but with his whole life. The proclamation of the kingdom of heaven isn't just about being able to articulate the gospel with our words, but it's about what we do with our whole lives. And Jesus demonstrated what the kingdom of God would be like with his life. Do you know how the new heaven and the new earth are described where the kingdom of heaven is in Revelation 21? It's described as a place where God dwells with his people. And he comes to take away all of their affliction, to exercise authority over evil, to end death. That people won't be living in the region of death anymore or in darkness but they will live in the kingdom of light, in eternal life, with God who's with them. That's what Jesus was showing with his whole life, that God comes to us to show us and bring us to the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples hear this invitation, they're totally bought in. They drop everything to join Jesus' mission. It's actually funny, the text kind of seems to indicate that for James and John, that they were actually in the boat fishing and dipping the nets in the water with their father, and when Jesus calls them, they just leap out of the boat. It says immediately they followed. They didn't waste time trying to get back to shore. They jumped out of the boat and followed him. They weren't afraid of what they were going to have to leave behind, and when a follower of Jesus knows their place as a follower everything in their life becomes subservient to Jesus. When we know that Christ is the Messiah, the one who we follow, and we know that we are underneath him as his followers, 
everything in our lives becomes subservient to Christ. Notice the kinds of things that the disciples are described as leaving behind. First, Peter and Andrew leave their nets in verse 20. The things that they owned that, in a way, kind of defined them. They were fishermen, and how could a fisherman be a fisherman if he didn't have his nets? Look at verse 22, where James and John are described as leaving the boat while they were fishing. They were in the middle of a work day. They were in the middle of just doing a normal day of fishing with their father. And they leave the boat behind. They leave their job behind. It would be like if someone came walking along while a construction worker was in the backhoe and he had the big, the big arm holding everything up and Jesus says, follow me. And he just stops driving the backhoe and says, okay, and gets out and walks off. I mean, it's shocking. Third, look at James and John being described as leaving their father in verse 22. They recognize that becoming like Jesus is more important than becoming like their family. Man, some of my most precious memories with my dad growing up were all of the weekends and the hours and hours and hours that we would spend fishing. And I imagine that James and John had spent their whole lives on the Sea of Galilee with their father Zebedee. And Jesus makes a claim on their family and says, are you willing to follow me at any cost? Jesus calls his followers away from the very things that are central to forming their identity. Their stuff, their jobs, their families. And he clears house and he steps into center stage because Jesus wants his followers to be formed first and foremost by him and by his example. So what then? Are we just supposed to walk into our jobs on Monday and tell our bosses, hey, I'm quitting because I'm going to go follow Jesus? Or text our families, hey, I'm not coming home for spring break. I'm going to follow Jesus. No, I don't think that's what we're being asked to do by the text. But I do think we need to ask ourselves, what's keeping us from having that same posture of availability that the disciples had? Are we too attached to our stuff and our jobs and our families, that if Jesus called us to follow him in a risky way, in a way that risked some of those things, could we say yes? Could we realistically say, I follow Jesus, and I trust him wholeheartedly, so I can walk open-handedly with all of these things? What is it that keeps us from reading this passage and thinking, I can do that, instead of being confronted with all of the reasons that we can't? Why is it that when we read this, we're like, yeah, but that's the disciples? I'd like to take a few moments to address some of the barriers to following Jesus wholeheartedly. This isn't an exhaustive list. By no means is this all of the reasons that that might be challenging. But maybe some part of this will resonate with you just a little bit. Maybe as you read the story, and hear it, you started to feel a little bit anxious and think to yourself, well, I could follow Jesus like that if I just knew a little bit more about where we were going and what I would have to give up and who we were going to talk to and what I was going to be doing. If I had just a few more answers, then I could do this. Then I would be ready and willing to follow. And there's a spirit of fear or a spirit of selfishness that Jesus won't give us better than what we have, that we hold on so tightly to things that we could never hand them over to God for his service, to calling others to the kingdom. But we see throughout Scripture that we're called to live by faith. Think about Abraham. Way back in Genesis, God spoke to this pagan man who was in the middle of his idolatry, and he said, follow me to a land that I will show you. Not the land I have shown you. Not the land I'm showing you in this vision while I'm talking to you right now. Not the land that you had passed by a long time ago. No, the land I will show you. And God asks Abraham to follow first. And Abraham does. He's called the father of faith. God follow, Abraham follows God, and God uses his faith to make a people for himself. 
and from that people bring about the Savior, Jesus. And the disciples found themselves in the same position. They were in the middle of doing something ordinary, the normal things in their life. And Jesus comes along and calls them and says, follow me. And they didn't give it a second thought. There's no record anywhere of them having a conversation about it. Hey, can we talk about this first? They're not really fishing for answers. Follow you where, Jesus? I'll go with you. Just tell me what I need to pack so I can kind of know where I'm going. They don't try and get him to clarify. There's no negotiation. They just wholeheartedly jump in and say yes. They didn't need to know where they were going or what they were going to be doing because they knew exactly who they were following. They knew the Messiah. They knew it was Jesus who called them. They knew it was right for them to follow Jesus. So when he calls them, of course they can go. They know that Jesus is the king proclaiming his kingdom. And they know that it's right to follow their king. And they trust that they're following their king. We can have that same kind of faith. In Romans 6.19, God invites us to present our members as slaves to righteousness. God wants us to trust him with everything, even the members of our own bodies, to be used for the service of calling other people to his kingdom. And when our faith falters, and when we have doubt, God invites us to pray for more faith. In Mark, you read a prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We shouldn't let our fear of the unknown or our distrust that Jesus could give us better keep us from being willing to wholeheartedly follow him. Think about what would happen or what could happen if your whole life was lived as a herald of the kingdom. How would you talk to your coworkers differently? How would you do your work differently? If your whole life was meant to be a proclamation of the coming kingdom, how would your life look like a kingdom citizen? How would your conversations with your kids change? How would you treat them? How would you talk to them? Everything about our lives can be used in service for the kingdom of God when we know that he's the Messiah that we are followers of. We can trust him. And we won't know what's going to happen when we trust him until we actually do it. Maybe as you're thinking about the disciples and you're hearing them and their faith, you think, well, yeah, of course they could leave. They're the disciples called by the flesh and blood Jesus. It'd be easy to leave if that was the case. If I was one of the disciples, if Jesus showed up walking alongside me and walked next to my desk at work and said, hey, come with me, maybe you'd follow anybody away from your desk at work. I'm so thankful that the Bible is candid in sharing the life of the disciples because the scriptures don't exactly paint the disciples out to be these perfect champions. They aren't these 12 super godly church planners who are brilliant speakers and always have the right thing to say and always know the right thing to do. We'll just look at one of them right now. Look at Peter who was called here in Matthew chapter 4. Here in this chapter, Jesus calls him and he says, follow me. Jesus says, yes, I'm all in. He's with his brother Andrew and they make a profession of faith. Yes, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. But then in Matthew 14, it seems like there's some disconnect in Peter's life between what he says he believes and his faith. In Matthew 14, do you remember the story? Jesus is walking on water and Peter's like, is that you, Jesus? And he says, yeah, it is. And, Jesus, and Peter says, all right, well, I'm going to get out of the boat and come to you. And he climbs out of the boat and he starts walking on water until he lacks faith. And he starts to drown. And Jesus comes and pulls him out of the water, saves him from drowning and puts him back in the boat. And he says, oh, you of little faith. He calls him a little faith. Two chapters later, in Matthew 16, Jesus was telling his disciples, he was trying to get them ready and say, hey, I'm going to die. The Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must suffer that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled. 
He's telling them what he's about to do. And Peter has the gumption to try and rebuke Jesus. He says, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. You're the Messiah. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. He literally calls Peter Satan. This is the same Peter who left Jesus boldly. This is the same Peter who in Matthew 26 or 27 told Jesus, I'm going to die for you. I'm not going to let anyone come and get you. And then a few hours later, in Matthew 27, as Jesus is on trial for his crucifixion, he denies even knowing Jesus three times. That's the same Peter that's called in Matthew 4. Or think about Galatians 2. The Apostle Paul writes that he actually had to go and confront Peter for the way that he was living. He was living differently among the Jews and the Gentiles, and he wasn't really getting it right either time. And Paul says that he had to go and correct him. He rebuked Peter. And this is after Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. That's the same Peter that's called in Matthew 4. I think it's even funnier that it's not just about their faith that the Bible's candid about, but even who they are as people. In Acts chapter 4, we read about Peter and James and John giving an impassioned sermon, praying powerfully for people. And what's the people's first reaction? Acts 4 says, perceiving they were uneducated, common men. Bible saying they didn't even sound all that smart. There wasn't anything impressive about them. They were common men, uneducated common men. And none of these events, none of this came as a surprise to Jesus. It's not like when Peter would mess up, Jesus would think, oh, I wish I didn't pick this one. I wish I'd pick the one next to him. Or I wish that I'd picked from the other boat behind their boat. No. Despite knowing he would deny Jesus, despite knowing he would be a little faith, despite knowing that he would mess up even after knowing the resurrected Jesus, Jesus still calls Peter. It's not about what we bring to the table when we follow Jesus because Peter didn't have a lot to offer. It's not about how impressive we are. It's not about our resume of faithfulness. It's not about our resume of impressiveness or the skills and the talents that we have. It's about God's grace to us. And Jesus reminds them of this. In John 15, 16, I think he left that there for all of us down the road who would be followers of Jesus and who would feel frustrated. And he says, remember, you did not choose me I chose you. And if you look at the passage, that's exactly true. The call to the disciples comes from Jesus first. It's not like they went and ran up to Jesus and waved at him and said, hey, 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 can I come with you? No, Jesus looked out to them. Jesus' love moved towards them first. It was God's grace that moved first. It's God's grace from top to bottom. He loves us more than we want to follow him. It's his grace that calls us to him and tethers us to him. It's this mystery that despite how weak of followers we are, that God still looks at us and says, I want you, I am choosing you, I am calling you to follow me and be like me. That's why Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And some of you might say, but wait, 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 wait. Jesus is the one making them fishers of men. And where is he now? He's not standing next to me here. But in John 16, in the upper room, right before he's crucified, Jesus tells these exact same disciples, the exact same men that he made this outrageous call to, and he tells them, it is to your advantage that I go. Jesus, what? I gave up everything to follow you, and now you're saying it's actually better for me that you go? And Jesus says, yes, 
so that the helper may come, so that the Holy Spirit may come. Jesus promises believers that when we have faith in him, we are indwelt with the very Spirit of God. And that means that for us, as believers 2,000 years after Jesus, that, he's cl- that God is closer to us now than he would be if Jesus was standing right next to us. God dwells within us. The Spirit of God is for us, and he changes us. It's the Holy Spirit who changes us degree by degree into the image of Jesus. That's the one who makes us fishers of men. It's not us. It's not our ability to follow. It's not how hard we can try to present a good resume to God. It's God who calls us, God who keeps us tethered to himself, and God who makes us what he desires for us to be. That's why it says in 1 Peter, we are not yet what we will be. So we're under the same charge that the disciples are under in Matthew 28. The last instruction that Jesus gives the disciples in Matthew 28 is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And evidently, by God's grace, they had some degree of success in that because that's why we're here. Because there were disciples who imitated and followed Jesus, who shared the good news of the kingdom, whose lives demonstrated the good news of the kingdom, and helped others see the image of Jesus. Their lives were such a clear imitation of Jesus that they were like the perfect prescription, the perfect lens for seeing who Jesus is, for seeing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that's what wholeheartedly following Jesus can do. When I think about wholeheartedly following Jesus, I'm struck by the example of the Moravian missionaries in the 16th century. The Moravians were a group of missionaries who had it settled that they wanted to go and tell everybody that they could about God. And there were two particular missionaries that as they prayed and as they sought God's discernment and as they sought what they ought to do, discerned by the Spirit of God that they were called to go and share the gospel with slaves over across the Atlantic Ocean. It's quite a call. But they trusted God. So they asked the Queen of Denmark, that's where they were living at the time, if they could have a boat to go over and share the gospel across the Atlantic. And the Queen said, no, I'm not going to let you go. So they thought and they prayed, how are we going to get over there? And they decided and followed through with selling themselves into slavery. These men left everything to go and tell others about the good news of Jesus. It's said of the Moravians, the two brothers who went, that as they were on the boat getting ready to be set to, se- set to sea across the Atlantic, that their families were gathered there, and their championing cry, the thing that they declared most fully was, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward for his suffering. And the Moravian missionaries who started the work there would go on and in the lifetime of the Moravian ministry, baptize 13,000 people. Wholeheartedly following Jesus. These men were bold and they were ordinary men who prayed and asked God for help. And God strengthened them and used their faith. You know the heroes of the Bible are just like us You know, James 5 describes Elijah, one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament, as a man with a spirit like ours. He says, Elijah was just like you and me, but he prayed in faith, and God made it stop raining. We can be wholehearted followers of Jesus when we know Christ's place and when we know our place. Christ is the Messiah one who died for our sins, the one who it is right for us to follow. 
And we can know our place as followers, as heralds of the kingdom, as heralds for the king that we follow. And we can know that we can share the gospel, we can share the kingdom of heaven, not only with our words, but with our whole lives, just like Jesus did. And God is still with us. God still indwells us by the Holy Spirit, and he's making us into fishers of men by his good grace. Let's pray that God would help us believe that. Father God, we are so thankful that you are the God who saves. You looked out from eternity and you knew our weak frame, you knew our sinfulness, and in your love and in your grace, you determined to send the Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to live a perfect life that we never could live, and to usher in the kingdom of heaven. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for the promise of the indwelling Spirit who lives within us, who makes us fishers of men. Would you help us to do that, God? Would you help us to know who you are fully? Would we not grow cold or stale or have a small view of who you are or what salvation is? God, would you remind us of our need to continually repent and turn to you? And would we be met by your grace there? God, would you help us to follow you well? God, would you give us eyes to see who we can share the gospel with, hearts that are bold to share the kingdom, lives that are aimed at demonstrating the goodness and the mercy of the kingdom of the king that we follow. Spirit of God, we can't do these things on our own. Empower us to do these things. Give us faith to believe your promises. Would you transform us into the image of Jesus that others might come to know him more clearly? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.